The city of Jerusalem is the most contested piece of real estate on the planet. It is the centerpiece of the three monotheistic religions. It's been conquered about 50 times or so, trading hands very often, very frequently. And I think today, certainly, it's a flashpoint for regional and international conflict. Now, Jerusalem itself is a relatively small parcel of real estate. Uh, If you take the entire greater Jerusalem, both eastern Jerusalem and western Jerusalem and the surrounding suburbs, it's roughly about 100 square miles. The city I come from, I live in Houston, and Houston, greater Houston area, is about 10,000 square miles. So a way of illustrating it is you could fit 100 Jerusalems in Houston. It's not very big uh, land-wise. But this small city, of course, has been in the news recently. A couple of weeks ago, the United States decided to formally recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. But moreover, the United States actually, for the first time, formally recognized Jerusalem not only as the capital of Israel, but as a city in Israel. I have three children born in Shari Tzedek, the hospital in western Jerusalem, a part of Jerusalem that was never in any foreseeable future agreement was never going to be part of anything but the Jewish state. Uh, Yet, my children have, from the United States State Department, consular report of births abroad, and it it has a blank space where the country is supposed to be. They're born in Jerusalem, and the country is nameless. And this is even West Jerusalem. So there's been a very interesting development uh, now that the United States is formally recognizing Jerusalem as a, as a city in Israel and as the capital of Israel, and they're going to move their embassy there shortly. And of course, much of the world has rejected this. Uh, the United Nations and UNESCO have passed recently and in the past couple of years various sorts of resolutions uh, contesting the Jewish claim to, to, to Jerusalem, are rejecting the United States' decision about this. Uh, and I think it's productive, it's constructive for us to learn about the history of Jerusalem, particularly the Jewish people's historic connection and their religious and theological connection to the city. So that's the idea. The idea is to give like a, in one sitting, to give a history of Jerusalem from the Bible to Bibi, from ancient times to modern times. Now to do that, we're going to have to uh, make some concessions. Uh, Jerusalem is a very long and storied history with lots of different people. And uh, if we're going to do it in one sitting, we're going to have to choose. And the choice that I'm going to make here is to try to focus, to highlight uh, the Jewish connection and the Jewish residence and the Jewish uh, life in this great and ancient and historic city. In addition, we're going to have to try to give basically a snapshot. If we want to go into all the details, it's going to take much longer than the time that we have allotted for. So the idea is a truncated version of the whole history of Jerusalem, all the way from the beginning, one of the first sources that we find about Jerusalem, and trying to tell the story of it throughout its history. I want to begin by trying to unpack the religious and theological connection and significance that we have in our faith in our history, in our religion, to this city. And I want to begin by the earliest source that we have about the significance of Jerusalem. And we're told in the Talmud, in the book of Yom, on page 53b, that in the second temple, 
They didn't have the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, the Aron. It is only present in the first temple. In the second temple, it's not there. Now, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the high priest, he goes into the Holy of Holies and has a bunch of sacrifices and activities that he does on the Ark. The mission comes and tells us that in the second temple era, there was no Ark. Instead, there was a stone called the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone. And instead of doing the, the services on the ark, he did the services on the stone, which was elevated three fingers above the ground. Now, the Talmud elaborates, what is this Evan Shasia? The Talmud says, why is it called the Evan Shasia? Because from there, the word Shasia means founded, the foundation stone. From there, the world was founded. The Talmud elaborates that the Almighty, when he, when he created the world, he began with this stone. This was the first stone. And everything else was stretched out from there. Uh, the Midrash says similarly that the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone, is like the navel, the umbilical cord of, of, a, of a baby. Everything else gets stretched out and fleshed out from there. This is the spiritual epicenter of the physical world. And we're trying to elaborate that idea on a little bit. Now, it's interesting, on Temple Mound today, there's a very significant and storied stone. In fact, the Dome of the Rock, right on top of Temple Mount, is called the Dome of the Rock because it's a shrine that houses a big, large rock. And there is a huge debate amongst all the commentaries as to whether or not this rock that we're talking in the Book of Yoma that was right in the Holy of Holies is that same rock that is covered by a shrine since the year 691, the Dome of the Rock. Is it the same rock? So the Radbaz, one of the great Torah sages of the 15th and 16th century, he writes in a responsa, incidentally, it's one of the craziest coincidences of all time, that the responsa number is 691, because he lists all the responsas, which happens to be the same year that the Dome of the Rock was built. Just as an aside, I thought that was interesting. But he writes... Without question, this stone that is under the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem on Temple Mount is the very same stone that is addressed in the Book of Yoma, the Evan Shasia, without question. And of course, there's significance to that because it's actually a very hot-button issue today. Is a Jew allowed to walk in the Temple Mount? A Jew is not allowed to walk in the dimensions of the Temple, but the Temple Mount is very vast. And the temple itself only stood in a small part of it. If we could pinpoint, if we could isolate where the dome, of the, where the Evan Shasia is, then we could figure out from that where the dimensions of the temple were, and we can know where to avoid if we are to walk on Temple Mount. However, if we have no idea where the temple was on this plateau, then the entire plateau would be off limits. But he says conclusively that this rock, under the Dome of the Rock, is the same Evan Shasia that's talked about in Jewish sources. Now, if you actually look at pictures online of this rock, it's actually very, very tall. It's not three fingers off the ground. It's like 20 feet off the ground. And that would have to be explained. So he wants to argue is that over the years it was excavated, and various parts were dug up, and he wants to theorize, perhaps, that maybe the Gentiles thought that the Ark of the Covenant was actually buried right there, and they were digging for gold, and that's why they unearthed 
the bedrock of the stone, and they exposed it through this excavation. And now additionally, we're going to see that after the second temple was destroyed, Hadrian, he actually raised the mountain. He uh, raised with a Z. He dug up and plowed the mountain, and that maybe will be an alternative explanation as to why the stone is much higher off the ground than it is described in the Mishnah. Now, regardless, others contest this assertion. Others say, no, this is absolutely not the same stone. But regardless of the exact identification of the stone, clearly we say that Jerusalem and the Temple Mount is the spiritual center of the world and the spiritual roots of the world. In the book of Genesis, we also read where Jacob ends up in this very same location. He calls this Temple Mount, he calls it Shar Vezesh Shar Hashamayim. This is the gates of heaven. And the commentaries explain that this means that this is the crossroads where the two worlds intersect. We believe that there is a coexistence between a spiritual realm and a physical realm. And there's two parallel worlds that exist simultaneously. But we also believe that there's a crossover. There has to be touch points between these two worlds. The whole idea of holiness in Jewish philosophy is that we believe that our physical world does not necessarily need to be mundane and divorced from spirituality. We can uplift the spiritual and find a way to merge and create harmony between these two disparate worlds. Where is the point in the universe where the spiritual world and the physical world meet and intersect? Shara Shemaim in Temple Mount. Rashi there incidentally, in the book of Genesis, tells us that all prayers in the world, if we make a prayer here in the United States, it has to travel to Israel, to Temple Mount, to enter heavens. It has to go, that's, that's the gateway, that's the portal to heaven. And therefore, every prayer in the world needs to travel there and has to ascend to the spiritual world from the portal, from the gates to heaven. Moreover, on the flip side, we also believe that our physical world cannot exist if it is severed from the spiritual world. So there has to be what's called hashpa'ah in Kabbalistic terms. There has to be influence and vitality that is dripped down from heaven to us. Where is the pipeline through which godly influence is delivered down to us? The gates of heaven, the portal from which these two worlds can intersect and meet. The Ramban also tells us, quoting the Talmud, that just like in the, in the physical world, there is a temple, there's a Beis HaMikdash, Temple Mount, there's also, in the spiritual world, also a temple. And these two are parallel to each other. I don't know what that means exactly, but it means that the spiritual temple and the physical temple are both oriented around Jerusalem. So the bottom line is, is that our, our theological religious connection to this site is very significant. Uh, in addition, in the book of Genesis, there are various visitations that our forefathers have in Jerusalem. Each one, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has a stop in this vaunted, hallowed ground. By my count, Jerusalem is visited five times in Jerusalem. Five times in, in, in Genesis. Abraham goes there three times. Isaac is there twice, but one of them is with Abraham. And Jacob is there as well. And I think if we read these stories, 
we get somewhat of an insight to the historical, philosophical, religious, and theological connections that the Jewish nation has with Jerusalem. So the first time Abraham, in the beginning of Parshas Lech Lecha, chapter 12 of Genesis, where we actually meet Abraham for the first time, God tells him to leave his home in Mesopotamia and travel to the land of Canaan, to what we call today the land of Israel. And then he tells him to travel all throughout the land. And there's a verse in verse 9 that Abraham went, He's in the city of Shechem, and he travels south. Or what city is directly south of Shechem? That is Jerusalem. The Rashi points out this is the first time that Abraham is visiting Jerusalem. The second time that Abraham visits Jerusalem is after the war of the four and the five kings. In chapter 14 of Genesis, there's this world war between four kings against five kings, and Abraham gets involved. And afterwards, after the war is over, there's an episode with someone by the name of Malti Tzedek, which means the king of Tzedek, Melech Shalem, the king of Shalem. And Abraham meets this individual. They, they eat bread and drink wine, and he gives him a tenth of all his money. And it's a very bizarre episode. What's going, who is this Malki Tzedek? What is this place called Shalem? What is this, everything that's going on? So Rashi tells us that this Malki Tzedek is actually the son of Noah, Abraham's great-great-great-great-grandfather. His name is Shem, Shem the son of, of Noah. And he is the king of a city called Shalem, and a city also alternatively called Tzedek, which is Jerusalem. And all the commentators there like explain that what's actually happening is, is that Shem, the son of Noah, he moved to Jerusalem. He was accepted as the king of Jerusalem. And Abraham came to pay respects to his great antecedent, a patriarch of that world. Now, why is Jerusalem called Tzedek and Jerusalem called Shalem? The word Tzedek means righteousness, justice. The word Shalem means completion or peace. And it's interesting because, again, very early on in our introduction to the city, we learn about its character. What is unique about the city? It's called Shalem, it's called Tzedek. So the various commentaries explain the word Tzedek means justice. The city of Jerusalem within itself, it has an innate penchant for justice. It's an interesting idea. We wonder, like, how is it possible that one city has been conquered so many times? Why can't any empire, nation, civilization just settle it? Here we find an answer. The first time we're told about Jerusalem, it's called Tzedek. The Radak tells us what this means is that the city itself is a city of justice. And it is intolerant to injustice. And therefore, if there is a people that dwells in the city, but is one that does not have justice, the city itself will expel those people out. It has a certain spiritual character that is incompatible with injustice. It's a city of justice, and there's no injustice there. If there's a people there, and they're not worthy of being members, residents of the city of justice, they themselves don't exhibit justice in their behavior, the city itself will evict them from it. Pretty interesting idea. And that maybe would explain why it's been conquered so many times. No nation seems to be able to have a secure grip on the city. The Ramban tells us the word tzedek and the word shalim both refer to perfection. Tzedek means justice or righteousness. Shalim means perfection. 
And he tells us that this is the city in which spiritual perfection is most conducive. If someone wants to achieve spiritual perfection, where's the best place in the world to go? You go to Jerusalem. In addition, he gives an interesting backstory. If you look at the aftermath of, of the flood, Noah has three children, and they're divvying up the world. So Yephes, he goes to Europe. And Shame, he goes to the Middle East, to Mesopotamia. And Ham, he goes to Africa. But the son, the fourth son of Ham is called Canaan. And the, and the, the whole country of what we call today Israel was called the land of Canaan. It was under the dominion of the Canaanites. And even earlier in chapter 12, it says, The Canaanites were then in the land. So what is Shame, who comes from the other, the Shame branch of Noah, what is he doing in the middle of the city of Jerusalem, in the middle of the Canaanites? So Rabban says something really interesting. He says that everyone knew, even in antiquity, they knew there was something special about the city. And Shame, even though his empire essentially was further east, he really yearned and desired to go to Jerusalem. And he went there, and the Canaanites, he was their uncle after all, they welcomed him in, and they appointed him as their king, which is an interesting uh, backstory. This does show, again, that we're not just being told stories about Abraham's travels, we're actually being, what's being revealed to us is the nature of this city that is so near and dear to the Jewish people and the focus of so much of our yearning throughout our history. So that's the second time that Abraham visits Jerusalem. The third time, of course, is in the story of the binding of Isaac. To go to Har Hamoriah and bring Isaac as a sacrifice, Abraham is told. And Har Moriah, of course, is another name for Temple Mount. And the reason why it's called, incidentally, the reason why it's called Moriah is because the word Moriah is from the word Hora'ah, which means instruction. And there is the, uh, it's the seat of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, they're the ones who gives Hora'ah, who give instruction to the nation. And thus, the town, the, the mountain is also called Har Hamoriah. Now, it is interesting that at the end of the episode of the Binding of Isaac, when, spoiler alert, Isaac actually does not get killed, Abraham is moved by this, and he decides to rename the mountain. And he renames the mountain Har Yerah, the mount that God will appear. And this is referring, of course, prophetically to the future, where the Temple Mount is going to become the center of, of Jewish life, where the temple is going to be built, Solomon's temple. We'll get to that in a little bit. And where God is going to be readily apparent and always going to be appearing to the Jewish people. Now, the name that we accord to the city is Jerusalem, or Yerushalayim. Says the Midrash, Shame, the son of Noah, he was the king of Malkit Tzedek, Melech Shalem, the king of Shalem. The city of Jerusalem is called Shalem. Abraham calls the city Har Yerah. You take those two words, Yerah and Shalem, Yerah Shalem, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. That is the origins of the name. We take the Yerah from Abraham, we take the Shalem from Shane, the son of Noah, and we put them together, Jerusalem. Perhaps we can surmise that indeed Jerusalem is a city of peace, because even its name, Shane contribute part of it, and Abraham contribute part of it, and together those two, uh, those two names come together to Jerusalem.
Now, Isaac, of course, had his appearance on Temple Mount in the Binding of Isaac, but by himself as well, he also has a visitation in this city when Eliezer is sent to try and court a wife for Isaac. They come back to Israel with Rebekah, and the verse tells us in chapter 24 of Genesis, Vayetze Yitzchak lasuach basada. Isaac went out to pray in the field. And the sources tell us that this is a reference he was praying as well on Mount Moriah or Temple Mount. And finally, Jacob, on his way fleeing from his brother Esau, he's going to Haran to find a wife. And he has a very dramatic pit stop. On the way, he stops, he goes to sleep, he has a dream, there's the angels going up and down the mountain, and the Almighty gives him a very powerful blessing. The Talmud tells us that that it wasn't by coincidence that Jacob ended up in that place. Rather, he was inspired. Abraham prayed there. Isaac prayed there. If I'm traveling by, I'm passing by, I should stop there and pray there as well. And he too renames the city. And he calls it Beit El, the house of God. And he also has another interaction with a stone. He makes a stone as a monument. And the sources tell us, it's a midrash brought down in the aforementioned book of Yoma, that the stone that he places as a monument, this stone that I make a monument, is actually a, a reference to the foundation stone. So we see Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, they have their interactions with this great city. Now, moreover, Jerusalem appears uh, uh, continually in the Torah. In the book of Deuteronomy, there are many, many verses that talk about when God will establish his place, and in the place that God will select. And the sources tell us that whenever it says Hamakom, the place, the unnamed place, it's a reference for Jerusalem. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, you'll build a temple in the place. The Sanhedrin will convene in the place. Incidentally, why is Jerusalem not mentioned by name? Why is it just called the place? And it's not spelled out that this is you know, where it is geographically, people should know where it is. Why, the, why does the Torah not explicitly tell us Jerusalem? So the Rambam, Maimonides, he gives us three answers. He says, number one, if the Gentiles knew where the city was, they'd have these bl- bloody wars over it. And therefore, you don't mention it, so no one knows where to find, where exactly this place is. Number two, he says the Canaanites would have destroyed it. They would have tried to sabotage the whole thing. If they knew exactly which mountain it was, that was the future home of a Jewish temple, they would have destroyed it. And lastly, he says this would be a cause for unnecessary sparring amongst the tribes of Israel because only one tribe could be apportioned that land, and therefore it remains unnamed. And when they divvy out the land of Israel, no one could jockey. It's all done by God. God decides who gets what. The tribe of Benjamin ended up with the land in which Jerusalem is located, but there's not, it's, not, it's not a cause for conflict because no one knows where this city is until it's revealed to the prophets later on. Now, of course, throughout the, throughout the Jewish Bible, throughout the Tanakh, Jerusalem is mentioned many, many times, hundreds of times, certainly cementing the links that we have to the city in the minds of everyone, but the most hopelessly stubborn people. Uh, that said, Jerusalem was not conquered by the Jewish nation for many, many years. After Moshe dies, Joshua leads the conquest of 
Canaan, what we call today Israel, and they would remain in the land for roughly uh, 800 years. When they enter the land, they find seven Canaanite nations comprised with 31 city-states. Each has their own king, and there's going to be pockets of Canaanite resistance for hundreds of years. You read the books of uh, Judges, for example, how they're having all these battles with these Philistines and all these various groups of enemy combatants that are still there. And King David, about 3,000 years ago or so, he finally succeeds in conquering Jerusalem, there was a, a, a tribe of the Yevusim, a Jebusite tribe. He conquers part of it. He buys parts of it. And for the first time, the entire, what we call today, the entire Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, is under Jewish hegemony. After Jerusalem is conquered, right, there's at that point, there's a temporary temple in Shiloh, uh, David's headquarters of his capital, of his kingdom, is in the city of Hebron. The prophet comes and tells Jacob, this city that you conquered, that's the city that God had mentioned so many times in the book, in the books of, of the Torah, make it your capital city. There's a very elaborate story of David dancing with the Ark of the Covenant, bringing it to Jerusalem. And from then on, Jerusalem is the political capital, the political center of the kingdom of Judah the kingdom of David, and forever, from that point forward, it is the religious center of the nation. It's the home of the Sanhedrin, of the high court, and it's also going to be the place upon which the temple's built. David is told by the prophet, you're not a good candidate to build the temple. You, you're a warrior. There's so much blood on your hands. Albeit it was righteous, but still, that's not the kind of individual that's going to build a house, permanent house for God. However, your son Solomon will. And we're going to enter now the golden era of Jerusalem. Indeed, I would argue the golden era of the Jewish nation. It's a time where the enemies have been quelled, the country is unified, there's stability, there is security, and there's a temple. This is the Jewish people at their absolute acme. King Solomon builds a magnificent temple on Temple Mount, on Mount Moriah. As it is being inaugurated, he prays that all prayers and all sacrifices offered to this temple will be, be, be accepted, irrespective of whether or not those prayers are offered by Jews or non-Jews, and even if the prayers are not fully, there isn't full commitment on the, on the, on, on the behalf of the prayer, it should still be accepted. It becomes the site of Jewish pilgrimages. All Jews living on all outskirts of the nation, they come to the temple, they come to Jerusalem a minimum of three times a year. It is the center, the lifeblood of the Jewish nation. The temple is called also a house of prayer for all nations. And Gentiles, in fact, can bring sacrifices, just like the Jewish people. They are welcome to offer prayers and sacrifices in the temple. And King Solomon's stature is recognized by all his counterparts, and it becomes the center not just of Jewish pilgrimages, but a religious center where much of the world has their spiritual focus addressed towards. This is such a good time for the Jewish people. The Talmud tells us that there were hordes, swarms, cadres, Multitudes 
of converts. They all want to join. It's just everyone wants to be part of the Jewish people. The Talmud actually says that there was a concern that things were so good for the people and things were so wonderful that there's going to be converts that are not sincere about, about Judaism. They just want to join this people. And therefore, for the only time in history, for the 80 years of the reign of King David and King Solomon, they actually did not accept converts because things, there was a concern that there was going to be insincere conversion. This high period did not last very long, sadly. Uh, after Solomon's death, his son Rehavah becomes king, and he has some poor advice that he receives from his advisors, and he decides to tax very heavily the northern tribes, and they already felt marginalized and isolated. They're far away from the center. They're like the, the, the rural voters who don't feel, who feel alienated by the uh, inside the beltway politicians, and there's a schism. And the schism is not nipped in the bud, and there is an actual secession. And only 20 years or so after the death of Solomon, the northern kingdom of Israel, it splits off, and they become their own independent kingdom. And the southern kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem, they're, they're now two, two separate. Thankfully, there was, it, was, it was bloodless, but there was a, there was a, a secession. And problematically, while Jerusalem and the temple remains in the property of, and it remains the capital, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel descends into idolatry. And their king is one of the great villains of Jewish history, Yeravam ben Nevat, Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. He is someone who had great potential. He could have been one of the great leaders of the Jewish people, but he was worried that the Jewish people his citizens, his constituents, are going to go down south for the pilgrimages, and they're going to have their spirits reawakened, and they're going to resist and rebel against his kingdom. So he barred his citizens from traveling south. Uh, you want a temple? I'll build you a temple. It'll be a temple for idols. And things really devolve spiritually, despite the Herculean efforts of the great prophets Elisha, and Elijah, the entire northern kingdom, over several hundred years, descends spiritually. And there's a stalemate. You know, we have a, a righteous kingdom of Judah in the south, sadly a wicked kingdom of Israel in the north, and as is typical with uh, Jewish history, uh, when Jews themselves are not worthy of living in their land, the Almighty says, okay, I'll find a Gentile to do a better job. And the mighty Assyrian Empire, led by the evil Sancheriv, they are expanding their empire from Iraq, and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And they were renowned, as many enemies of Israel are, for their brutality and their cruelty. Uh, we're told that they would burn and flay their enemies alive. And they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And their policy was, that whenever you conquer a land, in order to subjugate the people, you resettle them elsewhere. So if you ever heard the term, the ten lost tribes of Israel, that comes from the time of Sancheirev's conquest and the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel, those tribes are resettled elsewhere. Where they are exactly is a great question. 
and whether or not they're coming back is also a debate in the Talmud, but they're gone. And in their place, we meet the people called the Samaritans. And uh, if Jewish history is any indication, they're not the good Samaritans, they're the bad Samaritans. And now, Sancheirev, he continues his march south. And he tries to attack the kingdom of Judah. Then, during the reign of the great Judean king, Chizkiah, Chizkiahu. And Chizkiah was aware of this march south of Sancheirev and 185,000 warriors. And in preparation, he builds walls of Jerusalem that are 20 feet thick. And one of the hallmarks of Jerusalem is this very defensible city. It's a mountain surrounded by steep ravines and also has a natural water source. Uh, The problem was the new walls that he built around Jerusalem to stave off the attack, it actually, the water source was outside of the walls. So we're told in the sources that they built a tunnel they were chiseling through the rock and they built a 1,700-foot tunnel to reach from inside the city the water source outside the city. And still today, you can walk through Christiao's tunnels and see the spring in which there's still water there today remarkably. So Sancheirib tra- travels south. He besieges the city. And in Jewish sources, we're told, a plague came and killed all his people. What we know for sure from all sources is that the siege happened, but they never actually conquered Jerusalem. In fact, in the British Museum in London, there is a uh, Akkadian tablet, Akkadian cuneiform tablets uh, called the Sancheirib's prisms or Sancheirib's annals. And he records that I have Christia, the king of Judah, trapped like a caged bird. But of course, there's no mention of any conquest because there was no conquest. Judah is going to survive for another hundred years until the next great empire that the world uh, on the world stage, the Babylonians, are going to arrive. They're going to control the entire Middle East. Their king Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to lay siege to the city. People inside are going to starve. He's going to eventually burst through the city, destroy it, burn it to the ground, and send the Jewish masses into exile into Babylon. And this is the first time since the Jewish people under Joshua entered the land, entered the promised land, entered the land that was pledged to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now they're being led to Babylon in chains. There's a whole book written about this, the book of Echa, the book of Lamentations, describing Jerusalem as barren, as desolate, as lonely, and as a widow bereft of her children. The Jews now head into Babylon, and any betting man would bet and wager that they're going to disappear from the annals of world history. But of course, the Jews refuse to disappear and vanish. Babylon becomes a new hub of Jewish life. But the Jews, even in Babylon, are always eyeing their return to Zion, their return to the holy city of Jerusalem. A mere 70 years later, the Persian king Cyrus the Great, he declared that the Jews are entitled to return to Jerusalem. And he even paid for the expenses of the rebuilding of the temple and armed guards to carry the contingency led by Ezra back from Babylon to Jerusalem. And under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, the second temple is rebuilt. And the second commonwealth, the second Jewish residence and civilization in Israel is going to commence. 
Now, this is an interesting time period in Jewish history. Jerusalem is the spiritual epicenter of the nation. There's going to be a temple there, but the temple's going to lack a lot of the basic vessels of the first temple. It's going to lack the splendor and the glory and the constant miracles that were present in the first temple. And in addition, the majority of the Jewish people are not going to be living in Israel, in Canaan, near the temple. Instead, they're going to be in Babylon. And as a result, the temple is also going to see corruption. And with the loss of prophecy, it's going to open the door for all kinds of splinter groups, all kind of uh, a sectarianism. The notion of a unified nation, unchallenged by the commitment to Torah and brought together by a temple with ever-present miracles, that time has disappeared. Over the next 400 or so years, the temple is going to be present, but even the position of the coin of the high priest is not going to be sacrosanct. It's going to be sold to the highest bidder. There's going to be sacred rituals in the temple that are going to be deliberately sabotaged by a new renegade group called the, the Sadducees. And the leaders of the time, the men of the great assembly, are going to codify a new prayer book that's going to include within the 12, the 18 blessings, it's going to include two blessings about the rebirth and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Even though we have Jerusalem, we have a temple, it's a shell of its former glory. Now, the Persians themselves did not have a permanent grip on world domination. In the 4th century, Alexander the Great and the Greeks they conquered essentially the whole known world, and they are replacing the Persians on the world stage. Their initial conquest of Jerusalem is bloodless, and there's a very dramatic story in the Talmud where the high priest, Shimon Atzadik, he goes and he meets Alexander. Alexander gets off his, his horse, he bows before him, and he announces to his generals, I see the visage of this man before every battle, and he guarantees my victory. And thus, Jews have always held Alexander in high regard and even adopted his name as a Jewish one. So the Jews are living under Greek rule, and that's okay, until it's not. 150 years later, they went through Alexander, and then they were under the Ptolemite, the Egyptian Greeks. Now they're under the Seleucid or Assyrian Greeks, and things are going to change when Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, he sacks the city, he defiles the temple, he sacrifices a pig on the altar, he installs statues to the pagan god Zeus and of himself on Temple Mount. And of course, that is going to spur a rebellion known to us as the Maccabean Revolt or the Hasmonean Revolt. A bold and courageous family from Odin begins the revolt. After 25 years of war, the Jews manage to defeat the Greeks, they reclaim Jerusalem. They rededicate the temple. Of course, there are, there's the miracle of Hanukkah that we, we just recently celebrated. And they kickstart what's going to be 100 years of the Hasmonean dynasty, where the Jewish people, again, have sovereignty over the land. It begins with great promise. It begins by this great family, Matasyahu and his five sons, heroic family of warriors, of, of, of priests, who are restoring Jewish pride and restoring the Torah 
in the center of Jewish living. Sadly, it's going to devolve. And as we know, to be a king in Israel, you have to be a descendant of David. The Hasmoneans were Kohanim, and thus were not eligible. Thus they became, their kingdom is viewed in Jewish history as being somewhat illegitimate. There is corruption. We're the first time in history where they did forced proselytization. They were they converted people against their will, which is going to cause problems down the road. And sadly, many of their future kings uh, capitulated to become Sadducees. And in a twist of irony, the very kind of people that the original Hasmoneans, the original Maccabees came to reject, the Hellenism and the, the Jews who wanted to bring as much of Greek culture to Israel as possible, those same people uh, actually... They're descendants of the Hasmoneans who battled those people. They themselves became those people that their forefathers had battled. The end of the Hasmonean dynasty coincided with the rise of the Romans and their occupation of Judea. So the emperor Pompey is invited to settle disputes, and the Romans say, oh, you want to invite us in? Sure, we're here, and we're here to stay. Of course, Pompey is replaced by Julius Caesar, and he appoints a proxy Antipater as the leader of Judea. Now, Antipater, he's an Idumean. And his status as a Jew is in question because the Idumeans were forcibly converted by the Hasmoneans. They wanted to consolidate their, their control. And there was a nation, the Idumeans, known in the Talmud as the Kusim, who were living in Israel. And they wanted to solidify their claim. They wanted to have maybe a Jewish majority. And they forcibly converted them. And now there's a new king, for all practical purposes, a king of Israel, whose name is Antipater, who's an Idumean. Is he Jewish? Is he not Jewish? Was the conversion valid or not? Is he one of us? Uh, or is he an imposter? Now, he eventually dies, and his son, also an Idumean, he becomes king. And his name is Herod, known as Herod the Great. He was a violent madman, a maniac, and a murderer, but also the greatest builder that our nation perhaps has ever seen. Uh, he murdered anyone that challenged him. He murdered the Kohen Gadol. He slayed scores of rabbis, some of them in very gruesome and brutal fashion. Uh, one of them, famously, he gouged out his eyes and kept him alive. And even his own wife, who he married the last descendant of the Hasmoneans, Miriam, to solidify his claim to monarchy, he killed her and their children. But he was a great builder, and he refurbished the temple that was in disrepair and made it the most spectacular building in the world. And the Talmud describes that it had waves of blue crystal. And it was so stunning that the uh, administrators of the temple, they ruled whatever entrance you walk into the temple, you have to walk out in a different entrance. You're, it was such a earth-shattering, wowing experience, they didn't want you to walk out of the same entrance because even as magnificent and grandiose as it was, once you see it twice, it doesn't have the same effect on you. So you walk in from one entrance and you walk out the other entrance. And he expanded Temple Mount as well and he built enormous retaining walls to support the expanded plateau. The western wall of this retaining wall of Temple Mount still stands, known to us as the Western Wall. It's obviously a feat, tremendous feat of architecture and engineering to actually move stones. Some of them are like 45,000 tons, like insanely large stones 
that he managed to build um, and to in his refurbishing of the temple. Now, after his death, his kingdom is inherited by his three sons, who were renowned for their incompetence and ineptitude, and thus the Romans eventually retook direct control over the land. At the time, the Jewish people, especially in Jerusalem, there was tremendous influx of infighting, of schisms, of sectarianism, of various. It was essentially the Jews themselves were on the brink of civil war. And when the Jews are trying to kill each other, the Almighty says, I'm going to find Gentiles who could do a way better job at this. And in the year 66 of the Common Era, there was an event that triggered a revolt. The Roman proconsul of the time, a fellow by the name of Florus, also renowned for his incompetence, he allowed pagans to slaughter thousands of Jews, and the Jews were fed up with his rule, and riots broke out in many cities, and the protests were very viciously squelched. Many people were killed, synagogues were destroyed. That just gave fuel to the fire of rebellion. And the Emperor Nero at the time, he sent his general Vespasian, together with his son and apprentice Titus, to go and quell the rebellion. Eventually they laid siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, again, is a very defendable city. It's on a mountain. It's got water supply. It, it has enough to withstand. Herod rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem to really stave off an attack. Jerusalem at the time also had many wealthy people that supplied uh, wood for firewood and plenty of grain, enough, the Talmud tells us, for 21 years of withstanding the siege. But the Talmud tells us of a group of hotheads, whippersnappers, strongmen, who wanted a battle. They wanted blood, and they wanted to fight the Romans. And they knew that the populace in Jerusalem, they wouldn't, they weren't, I mean, they, who wants to fight the Romans? The most capable and organized military force of all time. It seems like a bad proposal to try to fight them. But these Bryonim, they wanted to do it. So they de- deliberately sabotaged the storehouses of wheat and grain and firewood in order to force the hand of the people to go out of the walls, the protective walls, and fight. And very sadly, they instead caused mass starvation in the city. And those, any Jew who tried to sneak out of the city to forage for food was captured by the Romans, and they killed him in very horrific ways. They, their method of torture was crucifixion. And at its height, there were 500 Jews a day being crucified outside of the city walls by the Romans. They denuded all the trees within 20 miles of Jerusalem, A, to prevent cover from those who were trying to flee, but also for all these crosses that they were using for their crucifixions and to to provide wood for the siege works to besiege the city. Finally, on the very same day that the first temple was destroyed, the second temple was destroyed too. They initially broke through the walls. After several weeks of slaughter, they actually set the temple ablaze. The Jewish general Josephus describes heaps of corpse of corpses surrounding the altar, Jews jumping into the fires, Romans slaughtering everyone they could find. They destroy everything besides for the western wall. They take all the treasures of the te- of the temple and parade them along with masses of slaves 
back to Rome. There's a arch that you can still see in Rome, the Arch of Titus, which is a depiction of what happened. And they make Jerusalem Judenrat. They kick Jews out of the city. Jews are not allowed to enter. And again, sadness and desolation returns to the once vibrant cities. And the sages of the Talmud are struggling to find reasons why this happened. And they are very cognizant of the fact that it's our behavior that causes us to suffer. And they found various reasons. The Talmud says the reason why is because they didn't accord the proper honor to the Torah. They didn't make blessings for the study Torah. There was senseless fighting, hatred of one Jew to another. They didn't recite the Shema in the morning. Whatever it is, the theme that the sages, who were by that time the unquestioned authorities of the people, the theme that they had as to why the destruction happened was always inward. And thus, the attitude that we've had since then is that if we're going to undo what happened spiritually, we have to go to find the root cause of the destruction and try to undo and reverse that. Yet the Jews never gave up hope and continued to yearn and pray for Jerusalem's redemption. Roughly 60 years after the temple is destroyed, the Jews briefly reconquered Jerusalem during the Bar Kokhba revolt. The backstory of that is that Hadrian, the Roman emperor of the time, he had made very severe restrictions against Jewish life and practice, and the Jews were fed up, and under the leadership of a great, mighty, capable, charismatic warrior, Bar Kokhba, Shema Bar Kokhba, they mounted rebellion. And against all odds, they succeeded in battling the Romans successfully. And the Romans were scared to face them in open warfare. And they managed to liberate Jerusalem. And there's even coins today, the Bar Kokhba coins, that were minted to celebrate that event. In fact, the modern Israeli coinage are replicas of the ancient coins that we find in abundance from the Bar Kokhba era. For three years, the Jews have sovereignty over the land, and they have made, start making plans to rebuild the temple. We have Jerusalem. But things head south very quickly. The Romans, under Hadrian, he sends various generals to systematically quell the rebellion and to, again, destroy any remnants of resistance. And finally, in the city of Betar in the year 135 or 136 or so, the last pockets of rebellion are there, and there is a mass slaughter on a scale never seen before. The Talmud says that it was even worse than the destruction of the temple. So much so, the Talmud Book of Gittin tells us that the amount of blood, there were rivers of blood that caused the local farmers, the Gentile farmers in the region, they didn't need to fertilize their fields for seven years because it was so well fertilized due to all the Jewish blood destroyed, uh, shed by the Romans in Betar. After the revolt is stifled, Hadrian goes out of his way to de-Jewify the city. He renames Judea Palestinia after the ancient group of the Philistines that Samson was warring 800 years prior. He renames Jerusalem Alia Capitolina, the city of Shechem, he calls it Neopolis, new city. We know the Arabs can't say the P sound, so Neopolis becomes Nablus, 
And he also goes to Temple Mount and using Jewish slave labor, he plows the mountain, lowers it from its height, and builds upon it a temple for the pagan god Jupiter. From that point forward, Jewish life in Jerusalem was ended. Jews moved north. Jerusalem, of course, is still the center of our prayers, but not of our civilization. And progressively, Jews are going to move away from Judah, from Israel entirely. For the next 1,813 years, after the Bar Kokhba revolt was quieted, the Jews would fail to establish any sort of hegemony and sovereignty over Jerusalem. So the Romans become the Byzantines. The Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity in the year 312. Uh, he knocks down the Hadrian's Temple to Jupiter, and he turns Temple Mount into a garbage dump. And he only allows Jews to enter Jerusalem once a year to be mocked and ridiculed as they mourn for their temple. And he turns the focus of the Christians to the temple that he builds, or the church that he builds, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And Jerusalem is going to trade hands several times over the next, the next several centuries, but Jews are almost entirely not present. It's going to be a Roman city, it's going to be a Byzantine city, then the Sassanians, the Persians, are going to conquer the city briefly. It's going to become a Byzantine city, again a Sassanian, a Persian city. And in the year 638, marks the first Arab Muslim conquest of Israel. And in that same year, the Caliph Omar enters Jerusalem. Now, it's important to remember that Jerusalem was a spiritual capital of the Jews and the Christians, but even the early Muslims first Muslims actually prayed to Jerusalem. And much of Islam, certainly early Islam, is built upon, it's, it's a forked version of Judaism. Uh, for example, the five daily prayers, that comes from the five prayers that we say in Yom Kippur. Uh, their holy day, initially, it was Saturday, like it is for us. And then they moved it to Friday. But they held Jerusalem in high esteem, and they come to, to Israel, they conquer Jerusalem, and they clear away the debris of Temple Mount, and they make it an Islamic site. In the year 691, Abdul Malik of the Umayyad Empire, he's the first of the various Muslim empires to rule the land, he builds a shrine known as the Dome of the Rock on top of that foundation stone. And he also builds, uh, several years later, uh, on the southern part of Temple Mount, he builds the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's important to note that the shrine of the, of the Dome of the Rock is not a mosque, it's a shrine. And further south, where you have the lead, the stone dome, is the actual mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it's interesting, the backstory of, of the shrine of the Good Dome of the Rock, you know, today it's, it's gold. But for the vast majority of its history, it was made out of lead. The dome was made out of lead. In the 1960s, they refurbished it and they covered it with layers of anodized aluminum sheets that gave it a goldish hue. And the problem was that it was poor engineering, so there were constant leaks. And in the 1990s, there was a multi-year effort to refurbish it. And King Hussein of Jordan, he sold one of his homes in London, and he used the proceeds to buy 200 pounds of gold. And they actually covered the dome in gold. It's an ultra-thin layer of 24-karat uh, gold. 
It's only two microns thick, which is about eight one hundred thousandths of an inch, uh, but still required 200 pounds of gold to cover it. So that's the shrine of the Dome of the Rock. Uh, initially, the, Jew- the Muslims are very welcoming to the Jews. Uh, they welcome the Jews back into, into Jerusalem. And for 70 years or so, Jews and Muslims are living peacefully, relatively, in this great city. But in the year 720, the new caliph banned the Jews from Temple Mount once again. And Jerusalem is going to be ruled by a variety of Muslim empires for the next 400 years or so. There's going to be the Umayyads and the Abbasids. The first one is a Sunni Islamic empire. The next one is a Shiite Islamic empire. But all that changes in the year 1095, when Pope Urban II urges the Christian peasants to liberate the city from the Muslim infidels, which they did. Uh, Along the way, of course, the Crusaders massacred and pillaged Jewish communities and performed mass forced baptisms. And in the year 1099, led by Godfrey of Bouillon, they fought their way into the city. They slaughtered all the Muslims that were there. For good measure, they chopped off their hands and feet as well. And the Jews, of course, fared no better. All 3,000 or so Jews of Jerusalem were herded into the various synagogues, which were set ablaze. And the Crusaders went out of their way to erase all signs of Jewish and Muslim presence in the Holy Land. They converted the mosque on Temple Mount into a church, and Muslims and Jews were banned from entering on pain of death. Thus begins the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the first crusader effort to establish hegemony over Jerusalem. In 1187, the Sultan of Cairo, Sultan Saladin, if you remember, we talk about Maimonides. He was a physician for the Sultan in Cairo. That is the same Sultan uh, Saladin. He comes to Jerusalem and he captures the city from the Christians. And that, of course, kit starts another, another crusade, which fails. And thus, there's a trend of 700 years of Jerusalem trading hands between the Muslims and the Christians. During this time, Jewish Jerusalem sees its rebirth. There's always been a few Jews in Jerusalem, but a community, the first community of the, of the, of the medieval time, begins when the famed Spanish sage, the Ramban, Nachmanides, travels to Israel and eventually makes his way to Jerusalem in the year 1263. And he actually writes that he gets to Jerusalem and he can't find a minion. There's not even 10 Jews in the city. He finds two Jews from Shechem, a dyer and a shoemaker, two brothers. He cobbles together several more Jews from Hebron, and thus he begins, he establishes a new Jewish community in Jerusalem. He builds what's known today as the Ramban Shul, which was extant from the 1260s until 1948, when it was destroyed by the Jordanians and rebuilt when the Jews reoccupied the city 19 years later. But from that point forward, there's going to be an ongoing Jewish presence in the city. Incidentally, the Ramban Shul is actually built uh, underground. It's subterranean. And the reason why is that the Muslims were much, throughout our history, the Muslims were much more tolerant of the Jews and the Christians, but they still 
treated the Jews as second-class citizens. And thus, a Jewish house of worship has to be, can't be, can't be higher than any Muslim structure, and thus it had to be built underground. In the, ninth, in the 16th century, there's going to be a massive influx of Jewish immigrants to the land, and mostly Jews fleeing from the Spanish Inquisition. Fortuitously for them, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which was very tolerant to the Jews and gave the land security and stability, they conquered Israel in the year 1516. And in the year 1537, the Emperor Suleiman the Magnificent, he built the walls surrounding the old city, which still stand today. Uh, He actually allowed the Jews to pray at the Western Wall. But at the time, the plaza where Jews could pray, it was only nine feet deep. But there's a rebirth. Synagogues are being built. The Jewish community in Jerusalem swelled. The growth is going to continually accelerate. In the year 1746, Rabbi Gershon Kitover, the brother-in-law of the Baal Shem Tov, he comes and arrives in Jerusalem, and he establishes the first Hasidic community in Israel and in the city. The Gaon of Vilna, the great giant of the 18th century, he makes an attempt to go move to Jerusalem. For various reasons, he turns around and heads back to Lithuania. But in 1808, the students of the Gaon of Vilna, they actually move to Israel, to Jerusalem, and they establish the community known as the Purushim, the first was known as the Old Yeshuv in Israel. These communities were very pious, very religious, but for the duration of the 19th century, they were supported by an international network of charity, though they lived in grinding poverty. In the end of the 19th century, of course, the Zionist movement was formed, and with the idea being of creating a Jewish, modern Jewish state, the name Zionism, of course, Zion is one of the nicknames of Jerusalem, and thus the old Yeshuv, with its population, is complemented by the new Yeshuv, the new establishment of Jewish immigrants, helped with the arrival of Russian Jews fleeing the pogroms, and Zionist Jews inspired by the dream of reestablishing a Jewish foothold in the land. During World War I, almost exactly, actually, exactly 100 years from today, on December 30th, 1917, Edmund Allenby, he conquered Jerusalem from the Ottomans, and the Brits are now the new bosses. And they revived the ancient Roman name for the land, and they named their new territory here the British Mandate of Palestine. But they commit, already in 1917, to establishing a Jewish state in the land, in the Balfour Declaration. And the policy of the British Mandate was to allow, to afford, to ensure safety of all peoples and all religions in the land. But this is going to mark an uptick in tensions between the Jewish community and the Muslim community in Israel. In September of 1928, the Mufti, the Muslim leader of Jerusalem, he spoke very harshly that the Jews had taken over. What did the Jews do? They put a mechitza. They put a barrier separating men and women by the western by the western wall. Oh, they're coming after us! And that that really inflamed the tensions. It led to various demonstrations between the Muslims and the Jews. And in August of 1929, after a particularly inflammatory speech of the Mufti. Arab mobs attacked Jews in the old city of Jerusalem and Jews throughout the city, throughout the land. 
uh, killing, sadly, 133 Jews. Uh, during the war, World War II, the Mufti himself moved to Berlin and was publicly supportive of the Nazis and of Hitler. It's a very famous picture of him sitting with Hitler and discussing. He was a rabid anti-Semite. Uh, back in Israel, the British regretted their decision of favoring the Jews and supporting a Jewish state in the land and began to side more with the Arabs. So as an example, there's Jerusalem, the entire city is built with what's known as Jerusalem stone. It's all white. There's only one building in Jerusalem that's not white. It's not built with, with Jerusalem stone. And the reason why they did that, perhaps, is they wanted to slow Jewish immigration to the city. They wanted to weaken the Jewish resolve to rebuild the city, and they made all these draconian laws to make it very difficult to build. In 1939, of course, there's the British White Paper uh, signed by Neville Chamberlain that really put very harsh caps on Jewish immigration to the land of Palestine. And sadly and tragically and shamefully, even during the Holocaust and even right after the Holocaust, those quotas were stuck to with British stubbornness. In Jerusalem, after the war, the Jewish underground were frustrated with the Brits and took matters into their own hand, and they launched guerrilla warfare against the British. The most notable of those attacks, of course, is the Menachem Begin's Irgun, which bombed the King David Hotel, which housed the British government's headquarters in an attack that killed 90 people, including some Jews. Now, as was their policy... They actually called in the attack before it happened. They said, we have, you have 30 minutes to evacuate the building. There is incendiary bombs in the building. And, of course, the Brits, instead of clearing out the, ha- the building, they actually barricaded the people in. And, sadly, more people have died than necessary. Regardless, the British responded by arresting all the leaders of the Jewish community, with the exception of uh, Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, who was out of the country at the time. And they deported them to Africa. But due to all this incessant fighting, the British lost their resolve and their will to rule Palestine, and they turned to the newly formed United Nations to solve the quagmire. On the 29th of November, 1947, the United Nations voted for the partition plan. Two states for two people with Jerusalem as an international city. And though these borders were not very favorable for the Jews, The land that they were given is very small, not connected, disjointed. Jerusalem is, uh, the Jewish Jerusalem would be isolated. The Jews accepted the partition plan. And of course, as has happened with every case, there's been an offer on the table to provide a state for the Palestinians or for the Arabs. The Arabs rejected it. The British notified the United Nations that they will terminate their mandate to Palestine on the 14th of May. And during those months leading up to it, everyone's jockeying for position. Everyone knows that this is all going to explode once they leave. Jewish Jerusalem actually is cut off from the rest of Jewish Palestine. The Arabs blockaded the only road leading to the city, what's known today as the Tvishachad, the Highway 1, or the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv Highway. It is, they blockaded it. And because it travels through valleys, the Arabs on top have easy access to attack any of the convoys. And very few convoys actually manage to penetrate 
the blockade. And in Jerusalem, there was rampant starvation, lack of medicine, lack of water, lack of arms, plague the residents. Until today, if you travel, let's say, from the airport, Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you'll see along the highway, they preserved the carcasses of the wrecked vehicles of all these convoys carrying aid and supplies to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv. They just kept those there as a monument to this time in history. On May 14th, on a Friday, several hours before Shabbos, and several hours before the British garrison in Jerusalem was going to withdraw, the state of Israel was declared and was immediately attacked by five Arab armies. The War of Independence has begun. Jewish Jerusalem was besieged and under fierce artillery and sniper attacks. Again, it was isolated and cut off from the rest of uh, of Jewish life, Jewish civilization. It was only saved by the opening of the so-called Burma Road. What they decided is in one night, we're just going to build a brand new highway. And they built, instead of going through the valley, they built going up a mountain, a makeshift highway that allowed supplies and convoys to pass into Jerusalem. During the war, there were many efforts made for the Israelis to try to conquer the city, but at the end of of fighting in 1949, the armistice lines where the war ended, where the armies were at the end of the fighting, actually had the old city of Jerusalem and all of East Jerusalem in Jordanian hands. And they promptly blew up all the synagogues, and even the Ramban synagogue that was present for hundreds of years, destroyed them, and all the Jewish civil- civilians that were living there, that had been there, many of them for hundreds of years, were banished from their homes. Jerusalem becomes a divided city. It will remain such for 19 years. In 1967, a war erupted in the region between Israel and its Arab neighbors. In only six days, Israel managed to conquer Gaza, the Sinai Desert, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, and for our purposes, Jerusalem's old city and its eastern half. The holy city was finally reunited. That same month, a song debuted that captured the spirit of the time. Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold. Part of the lyrics, we return to the cisterns, the square and the marketplace. A chauffeur blows on Temple Mount in the old city. And in the caves, in the stone, a thousand suns shine. We shall return and descend to Yamamelech by way of Yericho. It was a time of unimaginable euphoria. They cleared away the squalor from the Kotel and greatly expanded its plaza. There are those, of course, that lament the fact that during the warfare, they didn't send, quote-unquote, a errant missile to Temple Mount and get the construction crew ready to build the third temple. Regardless, several hours after the Israeli paratroopers declared triumphantly, Harabait Biadenu, Moshe Dayan, the defense minister, together with the support of the government and Levi Eshkol, decided to give Temple Mount back to the Muslim Waqf. Regardless, we continue to pray three times a day with the same text that was codified 2,400 years ago by the men of the Great Assembly. To Jerusalem, your land, your city, may you return with mercy. May you dwell in it as you have spoken it and build in it swiftly in our days an eternal home 
and the seed of David, your servant, may you swiftly establish within it. Blessed are you, Hashem, the builder of Jerusalem. I want to end with a deep observation of the Talmud regarding the various ways that Jerusalem is depicted by our three forefathers. Abraham, after the episode of the binding of Isaac, he names Jerusalem Har Yerai, a mountain. Isaac, when he prays there, Vayetze Yitzchak Lasuach Basada. Isaac went out to pray in the field. Abraham calls it a mountain. Isaac calls it a field. When Jacob renames it, he names it Bet El, a house of God. And the Talmud notes, quotes a verse in Isaiah that says, and many nations will go and say, this is a future prophecy, let us go and ascend El Harashem to the mountain of God, El Beis Elokei Yaakov, to the house of the God of Jacob. And the Talmud, in the book of Psachim, page 88, I believe, it questions, why is this mountain called the the mountain of the God of of Jacob. There's also the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the Talmud tells us is that no, Abraham called it a mountain. And that is a reference to the first commonwealth, to the first temple. It was a mountain. It it, it, It was the spiritual acme of the nation. It had all the miracles. It was it was on a pedestal. Second temple, Isaac, the second commonwealth, that was like a a field. It was much lower down. It was it wasn't spiritually ascendant. And in addition, the commentaries point out that the, that the way it was destroyed was very similar to the way a a field gets plowed. Hadrian came and actually plowed it up. Actually tore up the roots of this mountain. In fact, there's a famous verse in Micah, Zion is referring to the second temple being destroyed will be plowed like a field. We talk about the third temple. It's going to resemble a house. It's going to have an aura of permanence and continuity. And we hope that our current settlements in Israel and Jerusalem will indeed be meritorious to be worthy of being the third commonwealth of Jacob with the reestablishment of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Messiah may it happen speedily in our days.